0: Sean Hanson from Saunders College of Business at Rochester Institute of Technology. And I'm
1: Uri Gull, uh from the University of Sydney Business School. Hi, Sean.
0: Uh, hi, Uri. Uri has <laughs> asked me to uh, do the introduction with more gusto. So we'll see if over the course of us doing some recordings, if my gusto increases. Did oh. I ever tell you my standing joke about my voice? Standing joke I, with my students?
1: No, um, what is it?
0: I tell them that I recognize that my voice is auditory NyQuil. Uh, (laughs) What does that mean? I don't don't know if NyQuil is something that people outside. uh, NyQuil is uh, like cough medicine that's a sedative. So it's like cough medicine that'll put you to sleep.
1: And how is this an appropriate metaphor for your voice? My voice voice
0: puts people to sleep. It is auditory NyQuil. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh and so like I say to students at the start of class, look, if you're getting sleepy, stand up and walk around. Uh I, I won't even give them grief about the the head bob, you know, when they when they start to fall asleep <laughs> and this head snaps back up. But yeah. I've had students just put their head down. Like I'm not I'm not gonna put up with that. If you just cross your arms in front of you on the desk and put your head down, that is not gonna
1: fly. I like that you think it's actually because of your voice and not the content of, of what you're saying. <laughs>
0: Oh, no! Come on! Uh, <laughs> I think the content's fun the,
1: yeah, uh, the, so voice, stick-
0: the voice has a somnolent effect. I'm not sure if I got that word right, but I'll check it in before our next episode, okay, so this week, this week, we're talking about uh remote work and what the research seems to be saying about remote work, obviously, in the wake of the pandemic, we've all had quite a bit of experience with this, but um. I think uh, I'll, I, I'm i curious to see actually how this is in the Australian setting in the U S it seems like a lot of employers have no intention of going back to full-time onsite work. Uh, there are a couple high profile ones. Uh, I can think of uh, Elon Musk and others uh, mm-hmm. arguing for a return to full-time uh, work, but it seems like a lot of organizations have committed to remaining at least hybrid or partially online. Mm-hmm. So assessing, um, you know, what, what the impacts of remote work are on organizational performance and productivity, I think is a, is a really important question. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I will start by saying to you, what do you make of this?
1: I think there are many issues to unpack here, both at the organizational level in terms of what is the impact of a significant portion of the workforce working, working from home on things like productivity um, how innovative a business can be when a lot of its workers are working from home, but also at the individual level, there are interesting questions that we need to ask around the impact of working from home on on stress levels, levels of engagement um and and again productivity at the at the individual level but let, let me ask you this: Have you worked from home? at all during the pandemic or because I recall you being at the office quite a bit throughout. Yeah.
0: So, so this is, this is one of those things that I think there, there is an element here of, of personal preference for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, where absolutely we did. So we had, we were on, it wasn't lockdown really here in Western New York, but it was, uh, the, the, the school was closed for a period of time in terms of the physical, uh, plant, you know, the building, um, And absolutely, we we had remote work for an extended period of time during the pandemic. Uh, But I'm definitely a person who prefers to come into the office, and I feel that I'm more productive uh, when I am in my office and plugging away here than when I'm sitting at home. And it's my wife. My wife adopts definitely the opposite position. She goes in three days out of five, but I think she finds herself more productive when she is uh, working from home than when she's
1: on site. Why why did you have a preference to being in the office? Is it because uh working from home was too distracting, or because there were things at the office that helped your productivity levels?
0: Um so, so I think it is too distracting. I think I find it more distracting working from home. I also think part of it is the the setup, so the ergonomic setup. My desk and my monitors and everything here are are much more um oriented to work than than my setup at home. And I think one of the things we'll touch on is that having a dedicated non-shared space um, is the research seems to suggest that that is pretty important for productivity working from home. Um, I think that's part of it, but the distractions are uh, run deeper than just the ergonomic setup. Um, I find that when I'm there, I, uh, okay, so we can establish that I am a a gentleman of some size. No one will have, uh, (laughs) no, no one will see the video, but, uh, but I'm, I'm I'm uh, larger than I need to be. Uh, and so, you know, when I'm at home, there's a fridge always, uh, you know, a couple feet away. And I would find that I was eating too much and things like that. So uh, it's just, you know, not most conducive to, to productive work.
1: Yeah. I think one other thing we'll touch on later is the gender disparity in terms of how these interruptions or distractions are felt when people work from home, because while it might be, um, experience. why well, it might be distracting for both genders. Um, the way it actually, um, it's actually experienced is, is at least based on the research that we've seen, it plays out in different ways.
0: Yeah, it was really interesting. I found it really interesting that actually gender is an axis that is considered in most of these, most of the research that we looked at. And since this is a little outside my own research domain, I, I guess I that was a little surprising to me that gender was so consistently. Uh, assessed, um, assessed, and found uh, to be a, a significant factor as well. Yeah, yeah, almost always. Yeah, uh, in, in one way or another. Um, there's also a couple of concepts that came up in that regard that might lead us to some tangents, some things that I had never encountered before.
1: Sure. Okay, so do you want to do you want to start sinking our teeth into the research? Sure, and see um, see what what it says, what what the actual scientists say. Yeah.
0: So um, why don't we start maybe from a, a pro perspective? Or do you want to just start with whatever you found the most interesting of the studies that we looked at?
1: No, no, I think I think that's a good idea. Let's start uh with with the studies um that that found positive consequences to people working from home. So yeah. which ones which ones were those?
0: Now I will say one of the studies that we read um argued, and this was Chatterjee et al. in Journal of Business Research. Um and they argued that that there is a clear impact on organizational performance, that that uh remote work flexibility enhances organizational performance. Well, now, let, this
1: is let, let, let's just flesh out let's let's just flesh out um what they said specifically before I let you continue the argument. So they said mm-hmm. that remote work flexibility um is positively related to employee satisfaction and to employee productivity, which then in turn enhance organizational performance. That's right. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So remote work flexibility, which includes or is contributed to by remote location flexibility. So the ability to work from the location you want. Also remote or work time flexibility, work at the times that you want and have the infrastructure, the technology, the connectivity that enables you to do it. That all contributes to work, remote work flexibility. And as you said, those bolster employee satisfaction and employee productivity, which in turn improve organizational performance. Now, now we are going to set a precedent for this podcast because the question is how comfortable are we critiquing uh, the work of others? And very, people could always, uh, I I think we have to be, Um, I found this study problematic, thoroughly problematic. Why Uh, snapshot? So uh, a couple of things. Number one, it was all self-reported data. So Mm. essentially what the study team did was gather um, a lot of remote workers and ask them, you know, all of the measures asked of the remote workers, including their questions about their organizational performance, which amounted to, and I can try and bring up the, the instrument here, but questions about organizational performance included things like, oh my God. So my eyesight is bad. Another precedent to be established here. Um, I believe remote work. I believe remote working option can improve the performance of the organization. Improvement of organizational performance led to better competitive advantage. So those are questions being asked of the people who are already working remotely.
1: So can can we just? um... You're saying
0: is, I mean, there could be there could absolutely be a, a a selection bias. You have people who work remotely. Presumably, they're continuing to work remotely because they like it. And then you're asking them, do you think it? makes you happier? Do you think it makes you more productive? Do you think it improves your organizational performance? And the answers, of course, are positive on all
1: fronts. Yeah. So, so that, I, I that's think- one problem, the, the selection bias. But there's another problem which you touched on, which is the uh, the self-reporting aspect of the study. So there isn't any objective measures, a measure of, of productivity that's being presented or analyzed in the study. It's just based on what people say they think the productivity is and what happens to it as a consequence of them being able to work from home.
0: Right, right. Yeah, and their so own the, productivity as well as the performance of the organization.
1: Yes, yeah. correct. And, yeah.
0: and from a scientific perspective, this is something that really bothers me, right? So, for example, if this particular study, and again, the listeners can take it with a grain of salt, the critique, but with this particular study, if this were picked up by a reporter and was, you know, being sort of transmitted in the popular press, it would be studies show that remote work enhances organizational performance but from a purely scientific and evidence uh perspective i don't i don't think the conclusions are valid at least in, based on this research design
1: yeah i so i, I think I would. that
0: would be a, a erroneous conclusion is yeah. is what i would say yeah
1: i i'm not sure i would go as far as, as that i would say that we need to take it with a grain of grain of salt and and reexamine the outcomes using other types of data other sources of data that would be um, externally verifiable. Um, So I I wouldn't go as far as saying this is invalid or we should completely ignore this. I mean, it is something that people said, and and there are other fields of study where self-reporting is the primary source of information. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure we need to discount this altogether, Um, but definitely... Yeah, that's a good point. uh, Yeah, let's remain skeptical and look at other studies.
0: Well, I will say also that that this study does highlight a couple of the purported benefits, and those are worth at least floating in this discussion. Mm -hmm. So some of the argued benefits of remote work are obviously flexibility, right? It does give employees the flexibility of working when and where they want. So uh, certainly in terms of questions like work-life balance, there could be upsides there. Um, It also gives organizations uh, the ability to source talent without regard to location, right? So they can find the most talented people and, and bring them into their firm without having them be on site. So certainly purported benefit there. And lastly, um, they, they note some significant environmental benefits because people are not commuting. Um, certainly, you know, air travel and things like that, which have a a large carbon footprint can be obviated by, uh, you know, teleconferencing and remote work options. So I think those are certainly worth worth thinking about.
1: Yeah. Although going back to what we said before, I think there's another reason to be skeptical about this particular study. I think the uh, reported R squared uh, around organization performance, which is the the variable that the study aims to explain, 0.71 for people who don't know what that means that's the amount of variance in this variable that's explained by the independent variables by remote work flexibility, employee satisfaction, and employee productivity. And R squared of .71 in the social sciences is extremely high. It's right. very uncommon. Usually, you get yeah. .2 and or .3, and and you'd be super happy with that. .71 is um, is um, very unusually high. So I think that's another another factor we need to take into consideration when we look at this study yeah but I like I, I said R-square, before by
0: the way was just with regard to employee satisfaction and employee productivity
1: correct um yeah yeah, yeah right right which i think should probably increase the suspicion because it's just two independent variables feeding into the dependent variable and explaining almost three quarters of it right and that that's that's very very high
0: yeah. Well, and it starts to get us back to the term that I used last week of tautology, right? It's almost definition. You're almost defining meaning organizational performance is almost being defined as an organization where employee satisfaction is high and employee productivity is high.
1: Yeah, and it also makes you wonder whether the it might be a byproduct of the selection bias which you talked about before. Right. Right. Okay, so I think we've um we've had our way with that paper uh and agreed that might be interesting, but there are certain aspects of it that definitely need to be reconsidered, probably by using other types of data.
0: Absolutely. So, was there any of these studies that you read that you really that really struck your fancy that that really engaged you? So, there's an old old-fashioned turn of phrase
1: that really engaged me. We, we, no, we,
0: to strike one's fancy.
1: Oh. <laughs> I, I like the one um, that talked about the impact of working from home on innovation.
0: Okay. So this is uh, from nature.
1: This is from the um, journal nature. Yeah. Yes. So Brooks is and
0: a, Lavav, uh 2002 article in the journal nature, virtual communication curbs creative idea generation is the title of that one.
1: Yeah. And, and the outcome of the study is kind of, you can, you can tell what it is from reading the, the title of the article. So they found in their study, using a a large survey that they did, that working from home actually curbs creative idea generation. So it reduces the capacity of organizations to innovate when people work from home.
0: So that's a little bit of an extrapolation, though, on your part, because the, the research was done in experiments with dyads, with pairs of people. But obviously, the implication then is that it might impede the whole organizational idea generation.
1: Yeah, and their explanation focused on the cognitive aspect of of um, innovation, meaning that they found that people were um, less able to generate innovative ideas because they were focused on looking at other people on the screen, right? Rather, right. Rather than well, creatively and,
0: and filtering out basically everything else within a workspace within their environment. And everything I, everything else, I, being, I agree with you. By the way, I found this really fascinating.
1: So everything else being what what kind of things were they blocking So some out? of their
0: manipulations were that they had uh, sort of expected elements within the room, things that uh, charts and things that one might expect to see in a, in a problem solving room and other things that were, that one might not expect. Like a, a I think it was a skeleton poster on the wall and, uh, and things like that. So there were sort of random things within the room, but in the condition of virtual collaboration, they found that people's recall of those unexpected elements was much lower than when they were sitting in a room together. And through multiple controls, um, they they basically did sort of attribute this uh, reduced performance of idea generation and and reduced creativity, right? So it was mm-hmm. both they generated fewer ideas, and those de- ideas were scored by uh, undergraduate. <laughs> uh, uh, scores as less creative and they attribute it to this idea that when you're in these in the virtual setting you're just oriented toward the screen and you're filtering out other aspects of your environment which uh, i did find that to
1: be a, a fascinating mechanism to propose and when they were looking at the screen they were looking at their conversational partners at their faces which kind of grabbed the, the vast majority of their attention so i wonder if there are ways to circumvent the effect that they found by having a virtual environment that doesn't predominantly suck up our attention, attentional span by having to look at somebody else on the screen. I wonder if there are ways to work around this that, you know, that that organizations and managers can use.
0: Well, and even, even when we have, uh, so again, our listeners won't know this, but uh, we can see each other's rooms here. Uh, and and there are sort of unexpected elements in your room you have gu- your guitars over your shoulder and things like that so maybe maybe it could be simulated but how many of us in our virtual collaborations have people with blurred backgrounds hmm. plain backgrounds i have a reading room in my background
1: here but so nothing unexpected there but also but maybe a, that's a good question but also managers i think need to consider and, and this is something that came up in a couple of other studies that we looked at, they might want to consider reducing the amount of time people spend on online meetings, looking at cameras and, and being observed by other people on camera, because sure it might be necessary to coordinate or accomplish certain tasks, but it does come with a price tag. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and the one that they found here was reduced innovation and creativity. But like, like we saw in other studies that we'll talk about in a few minutes, there are other consequences that are not good um, for being online on camera for extended time periods.
0: Yeah. Now, one last note on the um the Brooks and Brooks and Lavav paper in Nature, they did not see a difference with regard to idea selection, right? So it turns out that the virtual teams were as good slightly better, not statistically significantly better, but slightly better in selecting ideas from those that they had generated, but not as good in generating, which suggests that this question of remote work will have significant contingencies based on the type of work. If the type of work being sought or pursued in virtual environments is inherently creative and about trying to generate innovation and solutions, there could be real costs. If it's more mundane things like selection and choosing and Maybe that's not mundane. I don't know, but uh, if it's things like choosing from pre-existing options, then mm-hmm.
1: then the losses are minimal.
0: Yeah, There might just
1: be tasks that require different things out of people. So being creative involves very specific things, whereas selection and um, uh, reduction of of opportunities in order to, to choose the best possible option is cognitively speaking is is a completely different thing. And, you know, when when I read this, it made me think of something else, of other research that I think was probably originally generated in the 1980s. So you might remember the name Nanaka was a Japanese professor. Does that Uh, name ring a bell? Tacit knowledge. Mm -hmm. So the idea of tacit knowledge was pretty big in the, I think, mostly in the 90s. And so Nanaka talked about the idea of tacit knowledge and explicit knowledge. So he made a distinction between these two different types of knowledge. Explicit knowledge uh, is something that can be pretty easily verbalized, externalized, and communicated without that piece of knowledge losing its meaning or its value. So for instance, Sean, what's the capital of of New York State? Is it Albany? Albany. Albany. So the fact that Albany is the capital of the state of New York is explicit knowledge. We can... Record that piece of information, put it in a database, send it in an email, and that fact wouldn't lose its meaning. It would be readily understandable to the person on the other side of that email, and they would understand what we wanted to communicate with them. But things like being able to um, ride a bicycle, play an instrument, speak a language, um, these are things that he described as tacit knowledge. Things that are profoundly and deeply embedded in our minds and in our bodies. And yeah, you you know
0: it you you possess that knowledge but it's very hard to articulate it in words or speech
1: in words or speech or in writing right. so you can't you can't That's simply what I by words <laughs> <laughs> you can't simply write an email to somebody to explain to them or to teach them how to learn a bike or how to play the guitar it's not going to work and so going back to um innovation when people are not co-located in the same physical space they have to communicate virtually using various technological means, there are different types of knowledge that are going to be more difficult to communicate that way, specifically tacit knowledge. And this is quite crucial for, from many professions because knowledge sharing is kind of the key in many instances to being able to act in innovative ways and to learn as an organization. And if you think about the notion of apprenticeship, for instance, right, which is very common in, um, in the legal sector, in in medicine, in design professions, various design professions, the ability to do those and to communicate tacit knowledge between individuals, which really needs to happen face-to-face when people share the same physical space, that becomes very difficult. And I think that that can be a major obstacle to to innovation as well when people are not co-located.
0: Yeah. Now, something that did not come up in any of our any of the research that we read in preparation for this discussion, but I have heard discussion of, is that the move to remote work also has this this network loss for younger professionals, older professionals who've already developed their network and know people and whatnot. Might not feel the same need to, you know, meet around the water cooler, the proverbial water cooler or coffee mm-hmm. machine. But younger professionals do need that. Actually, this does show up a little bit in one of the studies we looked. Yeah, at.
1: Yeah, one of them did talk about people's tenure within an organization. I think the paper we offer is the fatigue and effect of camera use in virtual meetings. Yeah, that's right. Right by so, Shockley so, and colleagues.
0: Yeah. So a series of the the articles that we consider come from a single special issue of the Journal of Applied Psychology. Uh, In 2001, uh, for for people outside of uh, academic domains, a lot of academic... Oh, I'm sorry. What did I say? 2001. 2021. For those outside of academic environments, uh, academic journals will often have a special issue where all of the articles or several of the articles within that issue focus on a single topic. And this was a a special issue focusing on the impacts of the pandemic and remote work. And one of those that does speak to this issue of sort of seniority or tenure within an organization. Uh, again, this is from Journal of Applied Psychology, 2021, Shockley et al. Et al is from the Latin for et alia, meaning and others. So whenever we say et al, it means we're telling you the first author and telling you there's a bunch of others. Yep. And the title is The Fatiguing Effects of Camera Use in Virtual Meetings, a Within-Person Field Experiment. What did the study find? Yeah so the the study found that the requirement of having a camera on during meetings contributes to fatigue psychological or cognitive fatigue i forget exactly how it's framed and the the argument is that it's because of the need for self presentation right mm-hmm. because when we have our cameras on we are we have to be cognizant of our own appearance uh, our facial expressions right when when Uri says something that strikes me as utter bullshit, I you know roll my eyes. And when our camera's on, he sees me roll my eyes. If I'm doing that in a professional setting, I might not want to roll my eyes, right? And so I feel like I have to constrain or or monitor my own facial expressions. And the idea is that that leads to some some psychological drain on my. I wonder though or fatigue.
1: I wonder though, people get used to. Use to- Everything really, right? We're very adaptive organisms. And that study was conducted over the course of one month, I believe, four weeks. Yeah. I wonder if over the course of the pandemic, for instance, people get used to being on camera and stop noticing so much. And so the levels of fatigue that they experience as a consequence of being online the whole time reduce with time. I wonder if anyone's looked at that. This study didn't. Yeah. It was just one month. But I wonder if it's something that, that kind of de- decreases over time gradually.
0: It's a good question. I, I, I don't know. I know that I still have in online classes, uh, environment, you know, areas where you have to prod students, for example, to turn on their cameras. Actually, right. I, I just started my executive MBA teaching for the semester and I was so psyched. I last night, the entire class had their cameras on immediately. And I didn't have to tell one per ask one person to turn on their camera. And it, it, I mean, there is definitely, at least anecdotally, based on my own experience, real gains. This is sort of like information richness, which, again, is a a theory from our own information systems domain that says face-to-face interaction is sort of the gold standard because your face does communicate information, right? Your facial expressions communicate something. Your tone communicates something. And so it's not just the words that you use. It's those other elements. And so when you don't have a camera on, you are definitely narrowing the channel. You're reducing the richness of the information communicated. And I have certainly, basically anyone who's ever had to teach in that type of environment, and I imagine a lot of people who've had to have meetings in that type of environment where cameras are off, recognize that it is a little bit of an impoverished information channel.
1: And it's certainly different from from real-life interactions where we see, you not know, just the faces and hear the voices we also see um you know the entire body and how it moves in space which which communicates many other cues as well yeah, but l- let's sure. go back to the study that we started talking yeah. about, so it found that people had their camera on that was associated with increased fatigue, which in turn has a negative relationship with people's voice, so how readily people are willing to voice their opinions readily and yeah, openly and-, and to engagement that's a, that's- so it reduced engagement as well. And interestingly, they found a disparity in the way that these um, relationships unfold between men and women and between new and more experienced organizational members. So women experienced higher levels of fatigue and therefore lower levels of voice and engagement, as did newer members of the organization, which is quite an interesting finding.
0: Yeah. Really interesting. Uh, And again, from a managerial perspective, it means that if if a manager says, all right, everyone turn their cameras on, they should at least be cognizant of the fact that 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 request might have a differential effect based on the gender of the people's being asked to turn their camera on. If women experience greater fatigue, there was a concept that came up here that was a reference to the literature that I had never encountered, which was the grooming gap. (laughs)
1: you see that one i saw that one yes
0: (laughs) which which essentially is a reference to the idea that women in professional settings because of you know long-standing sort of expectations around uh, presentation and appearance basically uh, experience greater pressure Mm -hmm. in terms of how they self-present and how they look and and i had not encountered that phrase it certainly makes sense to me i i used to Joke that if I ever wrote a memoir, it would be called "Waiting for Susie's Hair to Dry." <laughs> Susie, Susie is my wife, and uh, and you know the amount of time it takes her to get ready in the morning is orders of magnitude greater than the amount of time that it takes me to get ready in the
1: morning. This is this is funny. I think um, I'm I'm, lo- <laughs> I'm I'm looking at the affiliations of the authors of the study, and I think they're all American or at least all based in American institutions. And yeah, I
0: believe they. I believe uh
1: University of Georgia. Yeah. And I gotta wonder if there's Arkansas, a if there's a cultural aspect Arizona. to the argument here. So it it's probably true that in many Western countries there's this what do we call this? The grooming gap? Grooming gap. But I have to think about certain European countries where I think men spend almost as much time as women prepping, prepping themselves up before they leave the house or go on camera. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking Italy or France, I've heard people talk, and obviously it's all anecdotal, but I've heard, I have a, a female friend with a a French male partner, and she always complains about how long he takes in the morning to to get ready. Um, So I I just wonder if there's a a cultural element to that, to that argument. It's an empirical question. Um,
0: (laughs) that, That is a, that is a very interesting question. I wonder if that's the case.
1: But they also Um, found the similar disparity between experienced and newer members of the organization.
0: Yeah. So basically newer members of the organization experience greater fatigue when they have to keep their camera on. And again, I guess it's attributed to this idea of self-presentation, right? That if if you're new, you feel like there's more pressure to present yourself in a certain way. Um, yeah been around for a long time
1: and the the explanation they gave in the paper is that more experienced people who have been in an organization for a while have already had time to establish their identity their proficiency they know people outside of the camera setting so they feel more relaxed and more at ease and they don't feel like they have to prove themselves every minute of every day uh when they when they interact with other people remotely which is not the same way for people who are newer and and don't know many other people in the organization and don't have necessarily established established relationships. So there's there's more at stake there for them.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the, I agree. That was an interesting one, just in terms of thinking about these dynamics of camera usage and remote work. There was another study that I would like us to turn to that also showed significant gender effects. Also from that that special issue, and this was so again Journal of Applied Psychology. This was an article by Leroy et al. I guess mm-hmm. there's only three. We can read it. Leroy, Schmidt, and Majar. Mm-hmm. And this was called Working from Home During COVID-19, A Study of the Interruption landscape yeah. And the argument here was that we have to look at different types of interruption. And they, uh, drawing on earlier literature, said basically when it comes to work, there are five types of interruptions in work. There are intrusions. So think about someone... You know, knocking on your door if you're in the office unexpected. There are distractions which is something something happens that just draws your attention away. Uh, I guess a, a phone ringing would be more of a distraction than an intrusion. There are breaks which is you choosing to, to step away and, and take a moment. There's multitasking which is trying to do multiple activities at once and there are surprises. Mm-hmm. I was not entirely sure on the distinction between distractions and surprises but nevertheless surprises are Something else entirely. And and they found that the that based on uh did they consider remote versus non-remote here? They didn't,
1: right? No, they considered the work versus non-work. Interruptions. Right. So they
0: also looked at uh they in addition to distinguishing on those five axes, they also distinguished work from non work interruptions. So work induced interruptions are things that relate to your work, whereas non work induced interruptions might be things like, you know, your child coming, screaming into the room or yeah. something around the household, a, a, a knock at the door from a delivery person, something like that.
1: Yeah. And they and looked at each of those before and since COVID. And my, right. the, I think one of the, the major takeaways from the study is that whereas work interruptions, all those five types that you talked about remain largely stable with COVID, non-work interruptions spiked um, since covid all yeah. the all which, five types of interruptions which you mentioned the intrusions distractions breaks multitasking and surprises shut up during covid
0: yeah and so the that's work non-work interruptions almost doubled right which i guess is not too surprising if we think about living in a household with others right we've all uh, those of us who have kids which includes both of us have experienced the you know child uh, <laughs> interrupting in some unexpected way around the household
1: yeah but one, of, the, one of, yeah, go ahead
0: things it might also include things like i said like you know delivery person at the door or who knows.
1: but the one of the interesting thing that they found was that these um interruptions um, played out differently across genders so females are much more likely to experience those interruptions um specifically non-work interruptions during COVID.
0: See, that was the thing that really intrigued me. It wasn't specifically non-work interruptions. If it were non-work interruptions, I would, there's sort of in my head, a very obvious response. We know that in, certainly in Western households, mothers still bear a disproportionate amount of the care for family, right? Workload of caring for family. So you could sort of say, if it's not non-work interruptions, you can imagine, you know, the, the mother is the one who has to deal with the kids every time they interrupt where dad's in his office plugging away. And and, and so that would sort of – there would be an explanatory mechanism there. But one of the interesting things in the study was that it found that both work and non-work interruptions were higher for women than for men.
1: Since and COVID. Was,
0: so uh, overall and since COVID, yeah. the increase was greater. And that was intriguing to me because w- with regard to work interruptions – I'm curious what the explanatory mechanism is there. Why would women experience a higher degree of work-induced interruptions than men do? And I don't know the I, I didn't yeah. I couldn't sort of glean an answer.
1: Yeah, no, it, that that wasn't discussed in the paper and I, I I don't have a good answer. But one thing that they do talk about is the consequences of these interruptions, especially intrusions and multitasking. They found that they were associated with higher work-family interference, and emotional exhaustion, as well as lower performance. So yeah, these things have, have very real consequences that really organizations need to be acutely aware of.
0: Now, I will offer one caveat with regard to that, the impact on exhaustion and performance. Two of these interruptions are not like the others, right? So of the five that I just walked through, two of them are volitional, meaning you choose them yourself. So breaks are not something that happened or not an interruption that happened to you. That's a, it's, it's an interruption you choose in your work pattern. And -hmm. similarly, multitasking, I guess that could be argued either way, but multitasking is, is often someone chooses to do, attempt to do multiple things at one time as as opposed to focusing on only one. And so I think sort of disentangling the chosen interruptions from the unchosen interruptions might be something I would I would be curious about.
1: But multitasking can also be something that people have to do just because they have too many things to do and not enough time to do them. So they have to do more than one thing at the same time. Did they actually distinguish or discuss what kind of multitasking and breaks they were talking about there? If they were self-chosen or kind of enforced upon, pe- enforced upon people? I don't think they did.
0: Um, so I am not seeing in reviewing that study how they specifically operationalize each of those types of interruptions. It so appears we're not sure that if they're drawing on prior literature. On, yeah, so on prior
1: literature. We're not sure if breaks and multitasking were chosen by the people studied or whether it was forced upon them. So we have to accept well, the it, findings at you know face value and 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 take them at the word that it, it does lead to um uh, reduced to, to emotional exhaustion and reduced productivity.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, and one of the other interesting things that came out of that study is something I alluded to earlier, is the importance of a dedicated space that is not shared with others. So yeah. An office, essentially. Yeah. Uh, if you have a, a non-shared office space, uh, it can greatly mitigate the likelihood of interruptions and the impact that they would have. Yeah.
1: So I found, I found what the element of emotional exhaustion interesting. And this is something that came up in at least one other study. Uh, which looked at burnout, which I guess is one facet of exhaustion, or maybe the other way around. But at any rate, these two concepts are are related to one another, and that's another another study from the same special issue in the Journal of Applied Psychology by Shockley et al. Um, this is
0: a, this is our second shock, Shockley et al. So yeah, Christian shout M. out Shockley,
1: shout out to Shockley.
0: That's right, good work, Shockley.
1: So they looked at M. That,
0: Shockley from the University of Georgia.
1: They looked at remote worker communication during COVID, the role of quantity, quality, and supervisor expectation setting. And so they distinguished between... um, They looked at the impact of communication on um, people's performance and burnout, but they distinguished between communication quantity and and quality, right? So how much do people communicate with one another? And what is the actual quality of the communication that's been exchanged by people? Whether it's actually relevant, what people need, what people have to do at a given point in time, and what they found was pretty interesting because they found that communication quality had a, was positively associated with people's performance and with mitigating or, or reducing burnout. So it's kind of important, it turns out, to you know give people the information that they need and to have high quality communication with your coworkers or with your employees in order to allow them to be more satisfied, less burnout, and and perform better when they're working remotely.
0: Yeah. And communication frequency had some effect. But one of the things I was struck by, particularly with regard to frequency, was that the effect sizes were tiny. So the differences between, you know, high frequency communication where you're, you know, sending and receiving emails frequently throughout the day, as opposed to ones where you're communicating infrequently... We're not we're we're not big. There were not big differences there, even though there was some statistical significance.
1: So yeah, but the the the, the quality tiny, was the
0: piece. Yeah,
1: but but in terms of quantity, what they did find was that more communication was associated with with higher performance, right? And but also with more burnout, which I thought right, was interesting. Right. And I think it's kind of interesting to point out they, they had anticipated, the authors of the paper had anticipated to find a U shaped relationship between communication quantity and performance, right? So if you have right. no communication at all, then you're not going to be able to perform because you don't have the information that you need to carry out your job. If you have all the information you- that you need, you're going to be great. But if you have too much information, then you go into, you know, information overload and you're not going to be able to process the information. And there's a whole theory behind this which kind of stipulates once that happens, people withdraw and they stop effectively processing information and, and their performance actually drops. So that's what they yeah. had anticipated, but that's not what they found. Um, they found a, a positive relationship throughout. So we got, you know, the more information that you have with the more communication that you have, the higher your performance is going to be. Although the, the caveat is what you said before was that the effect was quite small.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah. The, the um, expected pattern of the curvilinear expected pattern of the u-shaped graph uh has some intuitive appeal to it right like you can imagine oh if uh if no one's communicating with me at all i'm going to be stressed out and my performance is going to be low if i'm answering phone calls and emails all day long i'm going to be stressed out and my performance is going to be low but if i have a sweet spot in between it's going to be great so i was kind of surprised that they did not see that that
1: u-shaped effect as well yeah Another thing that they looked at, but which I thought was um, was kind of telling, was expectation setting from supervisors. Right. And there's a bunch of studies that go back years and years um, that show that having clear expectations is helpful for people to perform, to be more effective, to be more satisfied, to be less burnout. out. So it's a good thing when you know what you're expected to do and, and what the rules are, what the norms are. There's less ambiguity. There's less stress associated with it. Well, one of the things I thought of
0: in this regard was uh, from our own information systems domain. Um, in agile software development, there's a very regular pattern around communication. Every morning, we're going to theoretically do the daily scrum. You know, the daily stand-up meeting. We go around. Everyone says what they're working on, and then you wrap it up. And so that that sort of regular schedule where we know when we're going to be checking in with one another, Mm -hmm. I think helps in sort of managing the
1: burnout and, and managing communication flow. Yeah. And coordination as well. Right. So what they found was that clear expectations setting on the part of supervisors did, did, was associated with positively associated with performance. So it did help people to perform better. Um, Yeah. If they they, know when and how they're going to communicate. That's right. But they also expected to find, clear expe- expectation setting with decreased burnout in, in accordance with previous literature and studies but that that relationship they they weren't able to um to establish that relationship in their data which I thought was interesting as well
0: yeah yeah i agree i agree that it's
1: interesting but um let, let's try and, and kind of um recap and and synthesize the main takeaways from the conversation we've had so far and and see if we can Come up with some actionable insights that people can use in in their own organizations. So, yeah. what do you think, Sean? Uh, we uh, I'll let you take the lead on that.
0: So, one that uh, is is very significant to me, and again, this comes from the the Nature article, is that the type of work being envisioned should largely determine whether or not remote or distributed, web based, virtual uh, connectivity is appropriate. Right. So if the work is inherently creative and focused on innovative outcomes, then traditional face to face and uh, in person coordination is likely to be much more effective. If it is more straightforward tasks, execution of clear guidelines, then remote work is uh, probably the benefits
1: of remote work are, are much more salient. Yeah, may, may, maybe there's uh, room for talking about the level of uncertainty involved in accomplishing a task and how much novelty and creativity it requires. I think that might be an interesting dimension that people should be probably thinking about when they require people to work offline or, or remotely, where you yeah. have tasks that don't require creativity, novelty, or don't require people to deal with a lot of uncertainty. I think it probably makes more sense to have um, people work on them remotely. Uh, But for, like you said before, innovative tasks that require a lot of brainstorming, coming up with new ideas, adopting novel frameworks and perspectives and so on, I think the challenge is going to be pretty significant. And that's certainly something managers need to be aware of.
0: Well, I think it also uh, implies potentially the need to revisit scheduling of activities, right? The way in which organizations queue up different activities. If you do have a move toward sort of three days a week, on-site, two days a week off-site, or invert that. And you want to make sure that more creative activities are the ones that are happening uh, and are queued up on the days when people are going to be together in person and where the those creative gains are likely to be achieved. Yeah, I totally agree.
1: Another another um, principle that I think came out of, of the conversation today is the differing effect that working from home has on different types of people. And um one distinction that we made before based on the studies that we saw was across genders mm-hmm. that women tend to um to experience more severe detrimental effect um when they have to work from home, both both because they have to be on camera and they they experience more interruptions and distractions from home. But also, and, and that's something that I was I think more surprised to find out, newer members of organizations can can experience these these effects in a a more severe fashion
0: yeah well and i think in general recognizing that there are stresses and fatigues associated with uh, remote work i think is broadly an important consideration for managers my own perception is that people often think of the remote work as sort of the less stressful option because you can sit at home in your sweatpants right it's like by the way, I heard a great neologism that came about during the the COVID epidemic when we were all distributed, which is hard pants.
1: Hard pants. What are those? Hard
0: pants. Hard pants means like non-sweatpants. So having to put back <laughs> on, you know, trousers that you, trousers. I sound like my father. That you would wear to work is are called hard pants. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Yeah uh but the idea is you know not pajamas not sweatpants and so yeah. i think we think of the remote work as the less stressful option but it's important to recognize that there are real fatigues and that those are unequally distributed uh i i think is a super important insight and and specific to the the question with regard to cameras i think it means as managers if we're going to ask everyone to turn on their camera we should we should have a good reason right we should understand why is that relevant Do we need the information richness? Do we need to see facial expressions Mm -hmm. or things like that? Or is it just our own preference to see faces? Because if we're asking for that, we should again recognize that that that's not necessarily um, impacting everyone in the same way.
1: It's interesting to me that most of the studies that we talked about, except for the first one, which we kind of picked apart a little bit in the beginning, most of them talk about the negative consequences of working from from home, working remotely. Whereas at least intuitively or based on anecdotal evidence that I I had, I heard many people say, Yeah, that's gonna be cool because I'm gonna have more freedom, more autonomy, more flexibility to work when I want. And if I don't wanna you know dress up properly, I don't have to. And there are lots of of upsides to working from home. But we didn't really find those in the studies. I wonder if it's because people don't ask these questions as much, or because these are more myths than realities. Yeah, it's a good
0: it's a good question. Uh, I mean, it, it, obviously, whenever we do these discussions, we're looking at a subset of of research, and you know, we cannot uh, do a full literature review for, for of course. every week. <laughs> But, also, um, but it if, is a good question. If I can
1: I, I partly answer my, my question, I think I think there's probably something to it. Um, I think there's probably individual variations because different people have different needs for flexibility and for freedom. And, and other people are more comfortable with authority and, and with being more obedient. But I also need, and that's something we haven't talked about at all today, uh, we need to be aware that with working from home, being a more... Kind of constant reality for many people. There's a wave of new technologies that allow people, meaning managers and, and organizations, to surveil their employees right. in a very detailed and in minute way throughout the day. Um, down to the level of, you know, what keystrokes mm-hmm. you're, you're using on your keyboard and, and stuff like that. So... Even if if people have this idea that working from home is going to enhance their flexibility and freedom, I think think, in many cases anyway, and I think in a growing number of cases, that's not really going to be the case given these technologies.
0: Well, and that, of course, relates to some of the work that you and I have done together. So I think that would be a great topic for another day. Yes. So So we will return to that. So as we wrap up, let's shift to a few of my favorite things. So I think this week we were talking about uh, books. We were thinking of uh, offering some books that each of
1: us uh, wish people would read. So my book is one of my favorite all time books is 1984 by Orwell, which is kind of pertinent to the last point we made just before about surveillance um, of people in, in their houses. So, have you heard of that book, Sean? Have you read it? Have you, ever, have you <laughs> this read this? Is book? one
0: where, if we have listeners, they will surely say, "Oh, welcome to your uh, high school reading uh, list." But no, I think it is a super important book. Absolutely, I, I think it is really critical. I think George Orwell was incredibly prescient, not just in that, but in uh, a lot of his other work. Not, yeah, so- a, not, not an uplifting one. Not. <laughs> Not an uplifting book. Not but uplifting, a, a yet re-
1: revealing of, of the human spirit, I would say. And so Absolutely. the book describes this dystopian society that's that's ruled by a, a governing party that aims to control everybody's actions and, and even thoughts. And to me, one of the most interesting as and obviously the, the notion of the big brother comes from, from that book. Big Big Brothers, you know, watches everything. But one of the most interesting aspects to me in that book is the means that they used to achieve those this total control um and specifically language and the yeah. invention of of a new language and And one of the most telling aspects of the book is that one of the things that they did there was to remove words from the language that they believed people might be able to use to express resistance to the party. Yeah. So, right, so right. that people didn't have the, the ability to even produce thoughts, let alone mm-hmm. spoken sentences or written sentences with which to oppose the party.
0: So, one of the core principles of Newspeak in the book is actually an impoverishment, my second use of the word impoverishment in one episode, but an impoverishment of the language. And the implication is that by reducing the words people use, you actually are reducing the thoughts they can think yeah which is i think a, that is a super rich insight absolutely
1: yeah but like you said before not uplifting yet revealing
0: i just want to say uh, we can do this another time but the other great dystopian novel of the 20th century of course was brave new world by aldous huxley i'm not going to offer that as my favorite book but i often find that the scarier of those two dystopias because there's an appealing aspect to it. When you read that book, there's parts of it with the Soma that can always make you happy when you're unhappy. There's part of the part of you that thinks, "Eh, I don't know. It doesn't sound so bad. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. uh, So So um, what,
1: what book did you choose?
0: So I'm going to offer up uh, a book that uh, I uh, made all of my kids read at one time or another. Uh, My youngest is 16. So I think I'll, I, I haven't yet forced her to read it, but I will which is The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is one of these writers who I far prefer his nonfiction to his fiction. I think a lot of people love his fiction, The Chronicles of Narnia or whatnot. I'm not a huge fan of, of those books and the other fiction, but I, I do enjoy his nonfiction. And The Abolition of Man is a very small volume that I think quite concisely argues against a relativistic uh view of the world and and ethical reasoning and uh and i i have uh that that sort of gives you a little bit of my perspective on the world but uh but i i think it's an important uh book to to wrestle with
1: so are you an ethical realist
0: i think we'd have to return to what we mean by realist
1: meaning that you do Uh, believe that there's uh, an ethical landscape within which it's possible to say that one thing is more ethical than another
0: Yes, I think there are some things that that can be arrived at uh, as objective ethical standpoints based on mm. human reasoning.
1: Okay. well, you know that might be a uh, an indication that we maybe can have a, a separate episode devoted to ethics and business. I think yeah, that might be good. another interesting conversation as well. I like it. Are we let's done queue for, today, it up do you for think? another time? I think we're done. I think we're done. let's wrap it up. Thank you, Sean. That was a good conversation. I enjoyed it.
0: Absolutely. Same here.
1: And we'll meet again next time. Next time. See ya.